Oh, good afternoon. Is it a good afternoon? <laughs> Life's a trip. Not just to say there's a lot of different um, ways that, that uh, these offerings, sharings, and we call them Dhamma talks, um, just different styles and flavors. And sometimes mine is a little bit more, um, actually almost always, it's <laughs> more improv. And so it's partly, it's a practice of mine and it's to, in a way, open to, for me, this process of the journey of life that uh, we don't know where, don't know where things are going exactly. And something kind of beautiful that the Dhamma invites us to is to open to this uh, ride, to this mystery. And conditions are always changing. As some of you had shared in the opening circle, um, some that we've reflected on a few times, there was a number of people who said uh, something like, coming on this tr- retreat, mm, not really expecting too much, kind of letting go of expectations. I'm just curious how that's going. <laughs> to joke about that because it's just so easy for expectations to come in and now that we're three days in how's it going right the mind starts wondering how how are things going kind of assessing and measuring things up and this afternoon when i had stepped outside and to go for a little walk this had a kind of a moment, you know, of clarity and seeing, you know, when the seeing gets a little bit clear and something so simple, like the wind was blowing through the plants and the trees. And this is a simple phrase in my mind. It's like, oh, when the wind blows, the leaves shake. And just a simple truth of something like that. It's so ordinary. And... and our mind and bodies are a process like that. It's uh, something so ordinary. When the wind blows, the leaves shake. And it's true in our own heart, right? When wind blows, our hearts shake. When our minds reach out to thoughts and stories or memories. When experiences happen that are difficult, the mind and heart shakes gets disturbed. So that's nature. My orientation wanting when I wanted to try to speak about this afternoon is this idea of trust of say faith, but it's confidence, trust. Um, the basic message that was coming to my mind was just keep going. And so I thought, maybe I'll just give a one-line Dhamma talk. 
It'll be just keep going. Because in a way, that's what we need to do. We just keep going. And we can keep saying the same thing, you know, over and over again in slightly different words or the same words. Um, but the encouragement, of course, is to keep, keep going. To keep going. And many of you know this wonderful line by Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, a scholar monk who said something like, for any journey to be completed, two things need to happen. One is to start and the other is to not stop. And then sometimes I like to add and make sure you're going in the right direction. Just what is the direction that we're going in? Because you know, if we don't, if we don't know where we want to go, then of course life becomes a meandering journey. And I think probably for each of us, um, we know what life is like when it's a meandering journey. And sort of up to chance, in a way, where do we end up? Where does the heart and mind end up? You know, day after day, week after week, year after year. We don't have a particular path that we know brings us somewhere that's meaningful. So a lot of the, a lot of the ways in which we are in the world, our cultural conditioning feeds our path. It sort of feeds, where is it that we're going to go? Where do we move towards? And the endless movement oftentimes, of course, is towards trying to find some kind of happiness in this fleeting world, some kind of happiness in this world that's not in our control and things happen against our wishes externally, all kinds of things happen. And then it doesn't take long for anyone that begins to look inwardly to see that the laws of the world apply inwardly as well. And this mind and heart isn't in our direct control. So I want to talk about a few ways in which faith arises, where we can take uh, faith, what we can take confidence in. It's interesting that the Buddha talked about suffering as being a supporting condition for faith. He said something like, What is the supporting condition of faith? Is faith without a supporting condition? And then he said, faith has a supporting condition. When there is suffering, faith can arise. So suffering can be a supporting condition for the arising of faith. How does that sound? Does it seem true? 
Maybe. Let's see. <laughs> and I think, you know, probably when we've looked at our own experience enough times, yes, it begins to make sense, right? That if we have this, be- this sense that suffering has causes and it's our interest to find our way out of suffering, we begin to look what is, what is the cause of this suffering. When we're untrained, right, before we have a path and we're just, we could say we're ordinary worldlings, meaning just the mind that is conditioned by whatever culture and family, society that we're in, we don't have a path of development, a path that's onward leading. When we meet suffering, there's a few different things that we tend to do. Without a path, maybe we try and get away from it. And try to escape it in any way that we can. So maybe that's changing the circumstances, getting out of situations, escaping the unpleasant. We try and find you know the best job that we can. Try and find the best relationship that we can. Right, this relationship's not working. I think I'll find another one. Yeah, this one's not working either. It's their fault. I'll go look for another one. God, it's funny, uh, each relationship I seem to be in, the other person just isn't quite perfect. That's interesting, right? So that's sort of, that's the mind that's always seeking something, right? Something else. And then kind of a more healthy response might be, well, let me try and actually address that. So that's one of the ways in which we try and meet our suffering in a more skillful way. Let me actually address this situation, try and act as skillfully as I can. Bhikkhu Bodhi calls this sort of a psychological, healthy way of meeting suffering. And that could be internally, that also could be in the world externally. And I'm trying to meet what's here and do as best we can, partly out of compassion for ourselves. And then at a more subtle level, and this is really the suffering level or the, the, the meeting of suffering that turns us towards, we could say, a spiritual path, is we begin to look for root causes. What are the root causes of this moment of suffering? So who has suffered today? Just anyone just got really lucky and not suffered today? Okay, maybe tomorrow. (laughs) So suffering happens, right? Now the interesting thing is if we could kind of delve into everyone's experience today and we just sort of have a party in one person's mind, like let's all join, go into that person's mind. You could come into my mind and we go looking, what were the causes in Alexis's mind of his suffering? If we were to go looking and if we were to do it skillfully, we would begin to see some cause. And the Buddha said, well, the causes are some parts of wanting, of aversion, of resisting what's here, of not liking. And all of those are always accompanied with delusion. So clinging to me as an identity, what's happening to me, I take personally, you know, I don't like it, or taking other beings to be selves that 
you know, I make into more solid than they really are, so I really have an identity view. Whatever it is, but the interesting thing is, it's not random. It's not random. Cause, uh, suffering has causes. That's always true. Suffering always has causes. So this is how suffering, the Buddha said, can give rise to faith, to confidence. And it may be for many of us in this room, part of what sparked our journey towards something as strange as sitting still, not talking for right a week, because most people in the world think that's torture. That's kind of one of the scariest things to people that don't come on retreats is to be in silence for a week. And the interesting thing is after a few days of being in silence and towards the end, most people, maybe not the really strong extroverts, but most people, very often the mind thinks, wow, this is so good. I don't think I want to talk to people, right? <laughs> and yet that's what we do. It's what, so, so we're very strongly social. And one of the groups, Anna, actually was pointing this out, just this, we're social beings, right? That's part of our makeup, right? And in a way we need each other. We really deeply do need each other. And yet the gift of this inner Silence, so beautiful to have. It's an invitation for us. So many of us began this journey. Um, we could say, sort of like the spiritual seeker. And again, I think this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi's calling it like the religious consciousness. It's the mind that wants to understand the mind that begins to turn towards uh, what is it that's going on? What is this life? What is the way forward so that I can begin to experience life with greater contentment, greater clarity, greater ease? And so suffering these difficulties and these hardships actually can be the very thing that moves us towards the Dhamma, right? towards being curious, towards what's real. So a simple question, which can be funny to us, like, did anyone suffer today? It's so universal. It's so universal. And there's nothing that's going wrong. Right? The Buddha didn't say suffering is wrong. He described it as a noble truth. This world being subject to changing conditions, not giving rise to selves that are in control and in charge, but are conditioned phenomenon. One of the realities that we experience is the nature of suffering, of dukkha. But he didn't stop there, luckily, because that would be depressing. And we'd say, oh gosh. Right, so, but there are these four truths. There is suffering, it has a cause. And there is the freedom from suffering and the path, the four noble truths. So those four noble truths are accessible to us 
each moment that there's a drop of suffering that we taste, each moment of a sense of something's not quite easeful right now, that can be the awakening of this very precious teaching the Buddha was saying, this is seeing the Dhamma. There is struggle in the heart. There's something the mind is is resisting. What's the cause? What am I not liking right now? What am I owning and possessing? Maybe we're making more out of a mental state, more out of an emotion, more out of what are just fleeting and passing phenomenon. And so we get curious about that. What is actually here? What's going on? So the beautiful thing about that is instead of an endless path or an endless process of trying to run and run, get away from difficulty, difficult states, this really can point very directly to the work that needs to be done. It can make the heart and mind very honest. So we just sort of ask, is the mind suffering? Yes, okay, that's true. Great, what can I open to? What can I learn right now? And this is where that role of interest and investigation that we've been talking about comes in. Can I look and see? What is the mind believing about this moment? What story is it telling? What else can I begin to recognize right now that might be fruitful to help the heart and mind to open to this experience? So very practical level, another thing that uh, I find is just a helpful thing to feel that sense of confidence coming in. So particularly at this point in the retreat, when we've maybe settled enough that we can feel just how much suffering there is, right? It's like, well, this isn't, it's like luckily most retreats aren't three days long because be quite a while before anyone wants to come back if we kind of dropped you off right right at the moment when the mind is like, I don't like this. You know, I really don't, get me out of here. Um, so just these reminders to remind yourself, it's enough. Can we have confidence and faith? This is enough. And one of the difficulties in in, in a way, in, in, in trying to support people and sharing our own practice is we want to, you know, share and convey our own experiences and things that we have helped us. And it can feel like a big download of tools and techniques. And then they all kind of come crashing in and it feels like, oh my God, too much. I, I don't want to do all this. So really, we, almost, we can't remind ourselves enough Can I allow this to be enough? What I'm knowing right now, can this be enough? 
Can this be enough? Is it enough just to trust the awareness to be here? Is it enough just to be exactly how I am right now? And again, nature has such an extraordinary uh, teaching in this. Nature meaning we look outside and we see, you know, plants and trees and leaves and animals. You know, you know, because like there, it's just sort of manifesting the way it is. I haven't yet really seen a tree where I go, well, that tree looks like it's trying to be like an oak, but really it's, it doesn't know, but it's a cypress. But it's going, no, I want to be an oak, right? Or um, a bird, you know, woodpecker wanting to be a, another kind of bird. It's sort of like just being what it is. That's the expression of nature in its own element. And with our minds, as extraordinary and beautiful as they are, because it really is amazing what our minds can produce. All of the thoughts, all of the imagery, all of the beliefs, all of this stuff, it comes with a lot of pitfalls. It comes with this extraordinary production of self, of wanting, of not wanting, So even though the whole world arises in our mind, it's amazing. It's like this is what the mind is producing. At the same time, when it's untrained and we don't know it well, it's capable of producing a lot of agitation and a lot of stress, a lot of unease. So this is we say, yeah, the mind compares and judges and evaluates and says it's not enough. I remember for a long time, I, I very deeply felt like I wasn't enough. And my partner would tell me, Alexis, it's, it's okay to take up space. Because I would be, you know, I'm giving a, a Dhamma talk like this. It's like, so, you know, I want to talk about the Dhamma. And, you know, Dhamma's really precious. Can anyone hear me? No, so, you know, so it's like the Dhamma, you know, so, so I was, my voice would be kind of withdrawn because I don't really belong. I'm not really entitled to be here, just how I am. And I remember when she said, it's okay to take up space. I was like, hmm, what does that mean, take up space? Like, aren't I, aren't I taking up space? But I began to observe how I was. And oftentimes I would see this, you know, in retreat centers. I would sort of start tiptoeing around because if I made a noise, like, oh, I don't want to make a noise. I don't want to disturb anyone. Particularly like some centers, like the forest refuge is so quiet. And then the, the floors are so squeaky. <laughs> and so it's like, oh gosh, you're going to walk down into the hall and it's floorboards like squeak, squeak. There was so just tangent. There was a monk, I remember, when I was in the monastery in Burma. I was just kind of sitting with my eyes closed and I kept hearing this squeak, like squeak, squeak. And then I'd go for a little while, then it would stop, and then a few minutes later it'd come back. And it was sort of a rhythm to it. And I was like, that's interesting. So eventually as I opened my eyes and, and waited for the sound, and I saw, oh, there's a monk at the front of the hall doing walking meditation. So in Burma, you can walk wherever you want. So people were just walking at the front of the hall. So I was, oh, okay. 
at this monastery permitted to walk in the front. So I was, I was watching and he would get to the squeaky, f- that one board, and then he would stand there and just shift. <laughs> Back and forth. And I thought, first I was angry, but then I thought, wow, that's amazing. I could never do that. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, well, that's kind of taking up space. I don't know if that's the good taking up space where he was just sort of playing with noise making, like, <laughs> wow, what is that state of mind? I was like, that would be new to me. So I, I have this aspiration, <laughs> find a squeaky floorboard. <laughs> um, so in the forest refuge, very quiet, very quiet. And um, so easy to then feel like it's wrong to make noise. We can even get to the point where, like in a meditation hall, it's wrong to breathe. I remember one time I was like, just naturally breathing heavily. Oh God, I'm not supposed to breathe. Or I'm not supposed to breathe heavily, right? And so, and then, and then of course, as meditators, eventually may have already happened to you, the swallowing fit where you just can't stop swallowing. <laughs> And that's funny also, because then you think I shouldn't be swallowing and it's nature, right? We're, we're, we get so judging of, the, of our uh, processes, self, personal. This is one of the things that in a way Saida Utejaniya embodies so well. And I've, I often have sh- kind of shared that he's, his, his demeanor is, um, uh, it's kind of like I've compared it to like this, the buffaloes that are there, the water buffaloes, where they just kind of do their own thing. They're just kind of walking and there's sounds kind of coming out both sides. And <laughs> it's like, and so he'd just walk by and sometimes he would make sounds like that, you know, different sides. And I would sigh it all. And he would turn back to me and say, nature. <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes he would say, Dhamma talk. <laughs> I was like, gosh, yes, if I could be that aligned with just nature. It's great, right? Because there's no stress then, no pressure. But instead, it's not okay to take up space, right? I'm very cautious and careful, holding back. Then it's very difficult to learn, right? Very difficult to learn if we're kind of holding everything in place because all of these beautiful patterns that need to be open to, beautiful in the sense that they are what helped us to get to this point, and now they need, right? They need our attention. Maybe we didn't get the kind of parenting, whatever it is. Probably most of us were not born to arahants, right? To freely awakened beings. I like to reflect on that often. <laughs> it's like, of course I wasn't born to free and fully awakened beings. And, and most of your parents, I'm guessing, like my parents, right? Not totally free. But in cultivating our own mind and heart, we have this possibility of meeting ourselves <laughs> in, a, in a really mature way, right? To really do this work, do this work that needs to be done. This is the work that needs to be done because these are the patterns that are all over the world. Any mind, any person we talk to, and this is why, again, Anna could say, yeah, coming here Ah, Americans, I thought maybe it would be a little bit different. Maybe they seem different on the movies. (laughs) Right? (laughs) 
But in person, oh, right, same minds, same fears, same hopes, same wants, right? Same curiosities. We want to be, you know, want to be free, want to, want to be awake. Not so different, not so different. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> talked about freedom, I didn't. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm used to people walking out, not walking <laughs> not walking closer. It's a new experience, okay. <laughs> Usually my mind has to go, gosh, <laughs> what did I do wrong? Why are they walking out? This time it's like, oh, I did something. <laughs> uh, oh, what did I drink today? <laughs> I didn't even have any coffee. Uh, uh, Things can be funny. Funny and tender, whole range. Whole range. Um, It is, you know, it is the, this, I think Tara Brock is in her book, Full Catastrophe. Um, oh, that's John Kabat-Zinn, yeah. From Radical Acceptance. Radical Acceptance, right. Yeah, but Full Catastrophe, just that whole, the whole, the whole thing. And um, since I've been joking around a little bit, I've been just kind of having lightness, um, also share something tender. So this last <coughs> summer, I lost my older brother. And uh, it comes up, you know, of course, in my mind and heart pretty frequently. Very dear to me, very dear. And It's interesting, you know, to see in retrospect, and it also was happening along the way, just to see um, even in the moment of getting the news, because it was sudden and unexpected, because there had been so much uh, training to sort of like conditioning, just the momentum was not fight it just feel, right? Just the rawness of it. So vulnerable, right? And the mind screaming against that reality because clearly I was very attached. Um, Since you don't know, it's like we can do this work and try to investigate attachments and then something gets yanked away, right? On a small level, it's like we can have our phone, so I'm not attached to my phone. And then it drops or someone loses it, you know, you lose it and go, oh my God, my whole life was, my whole life's over, right? Because of a phone. But a person, right? And dear brother, someone has been with you for so long. And you know, someone asked me whether or not I, like my confidence was shaken uh, not so long after that process or losing my brother. And 
that center hadn't even kind of occurred to me um, to kind of think that way, probably because I was just so immersed in the reality, just the reality of the feeling and the grief and the loss. And then on a very deep level, because the heart and the mind had really learned to align itself with what is happening, there was just being on that journey, just being on that journey in a way that kind of, I'd say almost like sealed the, the confidence, like sealed the deal that yeah, life is uncertain. And when we get separated from what is precious, what's near and dear, it hurts. You know, when we're holding on and, you know, there, there were times of course, when early on in that process, the mind was, my heart could feel like angry at the Dhamma even. It's like angry about the truths of impermanent. And I didn't want to even apply that truth to something so precious, like someone you love. It's like, oh, I don't want to make this into impermanence. I don't want to, I don't want to dharmify. It's like lay a smear of dharma over something. But that's not what the dharma is. It's sort of just acknowledging, yeah, this is what's here. This is what's true. But I didn't have to be doing that because I was so immediately in sort of like all the irrelevancies and things that were insignificant. The mind didn't have to try to set that aside because I was so clearly established in what was just front and center, right? And the heart aching and really, really deep sadness. That was kind of the biggest uh, meeting of that type of suffering that I've had to meet. And, but this is universal. I'm sure some of you have had some very deep losses. And if you haven't, of course, we're going to. And in a way, if we're lucky, we're going to, because it means we're still alive, right? Still living. But we may be one of the ones that other people have to open their heart to in terms of what is it like to lose, to lose you. And so all of this becomes part of, you know, our journey, all of the ups and downs, right? The ways in which we're touched moment by moment by our experience that is surrounding us. And, and really all of it is our path. All of it is our path. And we can see that, right? When we can really turn towards life as being our path and not I'm trying to turn life into a practice, but life is Dhamma. This is why someone like Sayadaw can just walk around, right? Be like a water buffalo. So it's like, wow, just back in nature again just as it is, so that when the slings and arrows come, we start to open to them, we see them. This is the nature of life. This is the nature of what I have to learn from now. This is what's teaching me in this moment. This state of mind is what's teaching me. Can I learn from that? The way my heart feels now. Okay, this becomes the next 
learning process. So that's why we say nothing is really ever going wrong in the Dhamma, once we really orient to the way things are, then it's a matter of listening, just tuning in. You don't need to do so much. And can it be enough? Can this be enough to just know what we know right now, feel what we feel, You know, life is made up of moments. And so when we start to engage more skillfully in any given moment, we really learn the art of being alive. Whole life is made up of just moments. And yet when you know, some things become difficult, we try and rush through it because we don't like the unpleasantness of that. And don't like the un- I don't like the experience of feeling this, so let me just get through it. Right? But with courage, with some confidence, with some faith, we say, what is this? Can I open to this? Is it okay for my mind and heart to just be flooded with grief? And, you know, is that okay? Not that I liked it at all, wanted it to go away, wanted the, tr- the reality of that to stop, to not be true. And yet, this is what's here. And so slowly incorporating that level of life, opening to that, not needing to run away, understanding deeply, you know, this is the nature of the heart and mind that is deeply sad. When does it tip into overwhelm? Mm. So finding ways for yourself you know, to, in a sense, into you know, what do you have confidence in? In showing up, maybe, or in allowing, opening, being vulnerable inside to what's here, to listening. Because our, you know, our default way of thinking is we have to have confidence in ourself. And ourself is just a story about whether or not we can or can't do something. But starting to have confidence in the Dhamma means we begin to understand more deeply what it is that's unfolding on this path. So what's unfolding are these beautiful qualities that are not self but they're part of our nature, part of the mind. And so we're cultivating, coming back to knowing what's happening, right? Recognizing, bringing interest, a little bit of interest in, some curiosity, times joy, 
right? joy and happiness brighten the mind and heart, important factors that are very supportive for continuing. So what brings you a sense of confidence, staying close to home? Maybe something very simple, like I just, I appreciate knowing where I am. I appreciate not being in a trance, being clear, waking up. 